Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh. This is Dharmapunks. And if you ever want to watch a, a bird with great taste dance, Iggy Pop's cockatoo is the one to watch. Iggy Pop's cockatoo, Biggie Pop. <laughs> Tonight, uh, talking about internet use. And why am I giving this talk? Well, generally, this is not the kind of talk I would give. It seems more the purview of social commentary or something that should be covered in a journal of clinical psychology. Uh, but I get a lot of requests for some reason to give a talk on the psychological and spiritual perspectives on social media, internet, and so forth. And so I like to think of myself as a full-service Dharma center. In keeping with that delusion, I'm going to try to live up to the requests. So this is by no means going to be a comprehensive talk, uh, because it would be impossible in the course of 35 minutes to give a comprehensive talk on what is now perhaps one of the most uh, prevalent usages of our time. In fact, the average global internet user spends around seven hours per day online. That's roughly in the same ballpark as how much we work and sleep. Internet does have many, many profound advantages from any spiritual and psychological perspective without remote working apps, for example, such as Slack, Basecamp, Zoom, Trello, et cetera, the pandemic would have been far more catastrophic in terms of the cost of human life, uh, hospitalizations, and of course, the attendant financial ramifications. And we can only imagine, of course, what the um, psychological toll would have been without any. Of course, many, many, many people didn't have access to remote work, but many did. And that is, of course, entirely the benefit of the internet working apps that allow for video telephony, etc. Countless individuals benefited from remotely connecting on video telephony apps such as Zoom, FaceTime, Google Meets, and so forth. Uh, it allows those who've experienced devastating physical and emotional wounds, the attendant anxiety disorders that occurred especially and were exacerbated during the pandemic. In the course of one year alone, anxiety disorders jumped 300% from 2019 to 2020. Um, <clears throat> so when it's used properly, uh, the internet can provide tools that reduce loneliness and anxiety. 
multiple apps allow us to collaborate and connect with individuals from distant regions, tech-savvy individuals in countries that are under heavy censorship, such as China, can organize protests using VPNs. Uh, VPNs allow people to have private networks so that they can evade censorship and evade the users who post on it, can evade having their identities revealed or known by authorities. If we're not anxious and we're not, and we haven't formed rigid opinions about specific issues, sites such as uh, Wikipedia and on countless sites can keep us informed and offer us different perspectives. In the past, it would be very difficult to reach people. I'm of the age that I can tell you there was a time when people didn't have smartphones and when to reach someone, you'd actually have to call them on something called a landline. Don't panic. Yes, phones were at one point connected by actual cables. And the only way you could confidently reach someone would be to hope that they were at home at the time you called them. So if you were facing a crisis or an emergency situation, the chances are you might reach an answering machine and it might take hours to hear back from someone. Platforms such as GoFundMe and others help individuals get financial support in situations where in the past uh, it might take them a very, very, very long time of uh, fundraising to get any financial support. The internet allows small business owners and craft people to reach far larger customer base than they would have been able to in the past. Uh, anyone with an internet access can find your jewelry line or your tie-dyed uh, t-shirt website. You have a far better likelihood of drumming up clients or individuals to support your crafts, your arts, and so forth. That's an overview of, uh, by no means complete, of some of the benefits, the numerous benefits uh, that online life presents. But now let's move on to problem areas, because as this is a Dharma talk, we always hit those inevitably. So personal profile-based social media, by which I mean Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, where your profile lies at the center of the experience, where images of yourself, where you reveal things about your life are at the center of the experience, as well as dating apps such as Match, Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, OkCupid, and so forth. These specific platforms come with an enormous cost. Anyone who uses either a social media app or a dating app should be aware of the potential uh, psychological toll so let's jump first to dating apps, which are, I think, for so many, the bane of uh, people's existence. Sadly, millennials, people between the ages of 20 and 30 especially, spend on an average of 20 hours a week 
on dating apps. It makes the heart sink. Why does it make the heart sink? Well, here's the statistical summary. 12%, a little more than one out of every 10 dating app users will find a lasting relationship from it. One out of 10. 25% might enjoy the results of dating or some form of hookup, i.e. they'll get laid using the app. But for 50%, it'll worsen anxiety and loneliness. As many psychologists note, using a dating app feels like ongoing rejection because one generally swipes uh, positively to far more people than one hears uh, welcoming feedback from. 40% of users continue to get contact from someone they clearly indicated they were not interested from. In other words, they got stalked. 40% were sent explicit, unwanted images they didn't ask for. You can guess what type of images those are. And 30% were called offensive names or words. So suppose I had a medicine which worked 10% of the time, but 50% of the time would make you feel worse. Would you take it? I'll leave it at that. Of course, people like to believe that they are the ones that it will work for, or some people believe there's no other way to find happiness. That's not true. But I would note as a Buddhist pastor that allowing complete strangers to decide our value based only on our appearance by any metric is a mistake. So the solution for me, and call me old school, I probably am, is to actually do things in the real world where you might actually wind up meeting people who share similar interests, similar beliefs. This could mean going on a Black Lives Matter gathering, join a group of people that learn archery, take a bike tour, go to a book reading, do things. In the real world, we might actually meet people with similar interests. But that's just my old school take on it. Now let's go to social media, which is even has even more pitfalls. Uh, social media are platforms that center on our self-representation, which means our image and personal profiles, which means we post things about ourselves, which essentially distends our sense of self. We begin not only to feel that our sense of self is in our body and our actual presentation with people in the world, but our sense of self now extends to everything we've posted online. We have a sense that we're connected to our postings and that depending upon the level of feedback we get to our postings determines to some small degree, whether we like it or not, our sense of self, self-esteem, self-worth, and so forth. As many psychologists have noted, given the centrality of one's image on apps like uh, Facebook and Instagram, Ultimately, the underlying, often unconscious purpose of the communication is essentially to make oneself look good, but not actually to connect. Social media apps have been shown repeatedly to raise and lower very quickly dopamine levels. 
the synaptic duration of which is very, very short. So you post something or I post something and depending upon the level of likes or feedback we get or et cetera, then it will give us a jolt of dopamine that might last all of 10 to 15 minutes. Brief to say the least, because true connection and true feelings of uh, interpersonal support is actually dependent upon serotonin and oxytocin, which are neurotransmitters, peptides that are not raised and lowered or significantly activated by social media use at all. So if we're going on social media to feel more connected, we won't. What we will feel is more addicted to it because it'll create or trigger the classic uh, dopamine reward cycle where we get very short bumps up and then we feel the dopamine decrease and then we feel worse and then we look for another hit of dopamine. 10% of social media users are addicted, which means they can't control how much time they spend online. Profile-based social media aggravates loneliness and anxiety. Period, end of sentence. There's been multiple, multiple, multiple studies that show this. Uh, one of my favorite was a study called Limiting Social Media Decreases Loneliness and Depression. I mean, they couldn't place it. This was in the Journal of Clinical Psychology, and they took a large group of undergraduates at the University of Pennsylvania, and they randomly assigned or broke them down into two groups. One group was only allowed to use Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat for a total altogether of 10 minutes a day which by the way is the amount that I allow myself to go on and post about classes or talks on the podcast. So 10 minutes a day. The other group was allowed to use uh, these social media apps as much as they wanted, which it turns out was roughly between three and four hours a day. So the group that was limited showed significant decrease in loneliness, depression, and fear of missing out. So simply limiting one's social media use is almost as effective as taking an antidepressant and reducing loneliness, anxiety, and depression. Another study by Shakaya and Chris, Chris, Chris oh my God, I can't remember the pronunciations of the name, found the longer we use internet, especially social media, the worse we feel. Social media detracts from face-to-face -face relationships, erodes self-esteem, and leads to making unfavorable social comparisons which means essentially we compare our insides with other people's outsides. A classic example, someone feels lonely after they come home for a from a tiring or they've had a tiring day of work, they're working remotely or they come home from it, they're exhausted. They look on their Facebook page to see what other people have going on and immediately they um, 
see that other people, images of other people at parties, traveling, lying on the beach, and so forth. So they're seeing curated images of other people being happy. Meanwhile, the user is well aware that they feel lonely, tired, sad, and so they immediately start to make a comparison between their insides and the curated images that other people post online. Nobody that I know of in the history of the internet has ever posted a image of themselves looking tired, beaten down and depressed on a Tuesday evening after they've had a long day of work, looking like this and going, uh, this represents my lived experience at this moment. We don't see those images, therefore it creates a misperception that other people are doing better than we are, which is of course not true. In fact, 32% uh, of the country right now meets the criteria for anxiety disorders, another 12% depressive disorders. That means that roughly one out of every two humans out there is suffering. So it creates a misperception. Um, but now let's even delve deeper. Uh, Scott and Woods, another study showed that use of social media over an hour a day leads to lowering one's self-esteem and disrupts our sleep patterns, which means we wind up with insomnia for using it. That's a very low amount. Now, social learning theory by Bandura, one of my favorites, Albert Bandura, uh, who showed how people learn and develop uh, behaviors, showed that human beings learn how to act by observing and imitating the behavior, attitudes, and emotional reactions of others. We don't learn really so much from being told verbally or being or reading. We actually learn through observing how other people act and we imitate it. Our species is a mimicking species, which means that we unconsciously copy and repeat the behaviors of others if we see those behaviors lead to good results. So, for example, a, a kid in a schoolyard sees that the popular boys or girls are wearing a certain kind of clothing. They immediately go home and demand their parents buy them the same clothing because unconsciously they've made the belief or come to the conclusion that wearing the same clothes or speaking in the same way or telling the same jokes or doing the same behaviors will make them popular. Uh, parents see their toddlers hugging and petting a cat or sharing food with their sibling the parent smiles, this rewards the child, and the child is more likely to do the same in the future. So what we're doing constantly through our lives is watching how other people act and observing if their actions or behaviors get them attention from others. And if we see those behaviors work, we imitate those behaviors. And then eventually other people imitate the behaviors that we've imitated. Enactments are generally unconscious as we are a mimicking species, we're not even aware of it. 
we yawn when other people yawn, we move our hands the same way that other people move their hands, we repeat the phrases as Bygotsky showed in his studies that other people use, and we repeat the same ideas that we've heard, and, and so forth and so on. Eventually, over time, we tend to believe that our social personas are authentic, but we have to push all the behaviors that are natural that don't win attention, positive attention from others to our unconscious, which means they're repressed or compartmentalized. And eventually this unconscious holds what Jung called a shadow self or a, a dark side of all the behaviors that we believe will lead to rejection. And there's many implications of that, and I'm going to give a whole talk on the shadow self and all that and what that leads to. But generally, the role of being at home would be to be at a place where one could confidently, in a safe environment, not have to continue the the performance of a social persona where we continually only act out the behaviors that we believe will get us love and attention, but that we can actually uh, engage in other emotions or feelings that um, didn't win social approval in childhood. Alas, many of us go on the social arena arena of the internet, which means we wind up double downing on the idea that we have to curate our lives and our images, only allowing people to see the behaviors that we believe are lovable. It leads to a worsening of repression, a worsening of compartmentalization, and it makes people's signal anxiety even worsen because the more we throughout our days have to continually push down the very natural impulses that we believe will lead to rejection in us. For some, it's their sexuality. For some, it's just their negative affects, the fact they feel lonely or sad or angry and so forth. The more we have to compartmentalize these very authentic and true parts of ourselves, the more we experience worsening anxiety as these attributes return from the repressed. Social media exacerbates all this because we feel we constantly now need to perform. All in all, the solution here is to use apps, these social media apps, especially the, the profile-based ones like Facebook, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, simply like one would use an advertising app to announce upcoming events or causes we believe in, but to not share personal information wherein we're seeking validation, recognition, or emotional support. Even if people say, oh, I'm sorry to hear you're going through that, it won't have any benefit at all. It won't raise your serotonin levels. It won't diminish your anxiety or depression. All it will do is make us feel even more isolated. So if we feel emotionally dysregulated, the thing to do is actually pick up the phone and call someone. That's the only way or connect with them on FaceTime. That's the only way that we can meaningfully reduce 
our anxiety, loneliness, depression, and so forth. We need nonverbal cues, people's facial expressions, their tone of voice to actually regulate our affects. Simply having someone type something to us on a message or on a uh, social media app does not lessen our emotional dysregulation or pain or sadness or loneliness. Now, lastly, on to news and information. I said at the beginning that uh, it's worth going on the internet for news and information if we're not anxious and if we haven't formed rigid opinions. But what happens if we are anxious and we go on the internet? Well, there's what is called as mood congruence and confirmation bias. The general purpose of the left hemisphere is not to contradict our mood or our underlying anxiety, but to actually validate whatever mood we're in. So if you're anxious or angry and you go on the internet, it will make you more anxious or more angry because unconsciously through confirmation bias, you'll find more reasons to be anxious or angry. Uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, countless people that I work with were connecting with me. And after they had spent time doom scrolling, as it's called, looking on the internet, unconsciously seeking bad news, um, called me up and said that there would never be a vaccine for COVID, that there would never be a cure, that this was the beginning of the end. I heard this speech over and over and over again because people unconsciously, when they're anxious, their amygdala, the fear, fight, fight, survival region of the brain does the selection of what article we're going to read. And so people respond to the most pessimistic titles, not the most optimistic. So I heard unending ludicrous projections entirely not based on any science about how essentially COVID would never have any vaccine or any solution to it. I also heard from people when vaccines were finally uh, developed that all vaccines are not safe, despite the fact that vaccines are responsible for us doubling our lifespan in the last century. Still, people for some reason will doom scroll and find the fringe articles uh, debating vaccines rather than understanding the hard science that goes into their development. Similarly, people who've gone through breakups who are heartbroken scroll their ex's Facebook page or Instagram. Why do they do that? Because unconsciously their amygdalas are looking for that one image of their ex with a new boyfriend or girlfriend looking happy so that we can unconsciously validate our underlying mood, which is we're heartbroken. So, if we have any anxiety or depression, looking for information will almost invariably lead to us finding more reasons to be anxious or depressed. If we're going to use the internet when we're anxious about an issue, type in the following, reasons to be optimistic, and then whatever topic it is. So, at the beginning of a pandemic, type in 
good news COVID, you'll find actually that there are actually hard science sites that will give you lots of reasons to not uh, continue and worsen one's anxiety, depression, pessimism, or despair. Unfortunately, it's entirely due to confirmation bias where people have uh, uh, beliefs that they've hard ingrained that they can go online and find confirmations for even the most uh, ridiculous and fringe beliefs. We see crackpot conspiracies such as QAnon, deep state, stolen election, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, you name it. Millions believe, believe it or not, that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, which cost the lives of so many children, was staged by actors and orchestrated, get this, by Jews. I'm a Jew, so I always want to understand what it is they think that we're trying to get from orchestrating mass shootings or staging them. But anyway, that's actually uh, what people can find legitimation or validation for. So if you have a strong belief, you will not be dissuaded by going on the internet. In fact, you will find reasons to double down and become even more uh, uh, attached to these ideas that will uh, uh, at very best make your friends roll their eyes or eventually drop uh, or block you <laughs> from connections. I was watching a special on Netflix by a comedian who did a, but named Bo Burnham, who did a special called Inside. And he had a song about the internet. And uh, I typed, I wrote down some of the lyrics. It's a very funny uh, song, but it went, welcome to the internet. What would you prefer? Would you like to fight for civil, civil rights or tweet a racial slur? Which Power Ranger are you? Take this quirky quiz. Obama sent the immigrants to vaccinate your kids. I love that one. Obama sent the Im immigrants to vaccinate your kids. Yes, you can find, he actually based his lyrics on real conspiracies on the internet. So in short, uh, oh, before I jump to that, I actually have one more thing to say, and then we're going to go to our meditation. Uh, uh, of course, the internet worsens anxiety dis uh, disorders, um, uh, worsens our lack of agency. There's nothing worse than scrolling through news feeds on, of issues we have no reasonable hope of addressing. Um, essentially, it puts our autonomic nervous system into a chronic state of threat detection and makes us even feel a greater degree of learned hopelessness. And finally, one more thing to bear in mind, uh, which uh, the writer Gia Tolentino, who wrote a very good book, good book called Trick Mirror, the internet fosters the belief that simply having an opinion has an impact, that having an opinion is as good as somehow taking an action. As she notes, uh, opinions become an end in themselves. 
she wrote that at one point, merely being or existing as a feminist is confused with doing something important or expressing moral outrage online people believe somehow has a positive effect on the world. It doesn't. Posting about Black Lives, Black Lives Matter has no lasting effect on racial injustice in our country. It's actually by going out uh, constantly to the gatherings and uh, marching, uh, direct action and so forth, that leads to even the smallest incremental change. For in, from a Dharmic perspective, the delusion that our opinions in some way matter is what's called Didi Upadana, wherein we confuse our identity with our thoughts or our ideas. The Buddha said this is a fundamental delusion that leads to suffering. It makes us confuse our ideas with lived experience. Meditating is not the same as sharing online that meditation is good. It just isn't. One has to actually meditate, not talk about that one believes meditating is a worthy experience. Confusing our opinions with our sense of self leads to conflict, because if we really believe our opinions matter online, then we have to defend them against contrasting opinions. Eventually, when we scroll through Facebook or whatever, it feels like an empty experience unless we find a terrible opinion that we get to react to. It creates a delusion that denouncing enemies is the way we make friends. It's not. Friendship is based on the disclosure of our internal experience, not simply based on denouncing the latest thing, horrible thing that the Republican Party has done. So, Finally, internet encourages us to overvalue our opinions. It cheapens our understanding of the value of lived experience and real interpersonal nonverbal emotional support. If we're anxious about events, the best thing to do is to find another human being and disclose our anxiety in person or on, on video telephony apps or on the phone. And to follow the good advice of countless cognitive behavioral therapists, if you have a strong opinion, look for disconfirming evidence so that you have different perspectives on our beliefs. Thank you for listening to this. And now it's time for us to uh, practice and meditation. And during the meditation, we're going to flush out all of these thoughts, but we're also going to have a meditation that will help us conquer or put aside any degree of social media dependence that we've developed over time. So whew, find a really comfortable seated position. And for this meditation, just that means um, either lying down or upright. You don't try to look like a meditator. Drop that idea of being a meditator. And just find the most comfortable position to do for you. 
And while you do that, as always, I've forgotten to make my single pitch, which is uh, if you'd like to support my work, the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC. That's Dharma Punks with an X NYC. So uh, finding that comfortable position. Closing the eyes if that's appropriate or feels right for you. If you don't, just lower the eyelids and just allow your gaze to settle on a neutral object like the floor, a rug, etc. If that's not comfortable, find something neutral in your environment, a plant, a candle, a window, and just rest your eyes on that neutral uh, impression. Take a nice full in-breath and then a long, slow out-breath. Simply extending the length of one's out-breath is an anxiolytic, it reduces anxiety, emotional activation, breathing out releases acetylcholine, act activates the vagus nerve, all of which helps you switch back into rest and digest states. So fill up the belly and then the lungs and then with the breath and then long release of the exhalation. When I say fill up the belly, it's meaning we're not literally bringing air into the belly, but we're simply pull. It feels like we're pulling in the breath by expanding the belly as if it's inflating with air and then the chest. So there's this movement upwards in the body of energy and then the exhalation is one releases the exhalation and we feel the chest decrease and then the belly softens. So just being with the breath becomes like surfing up the body, going out into the ocean. And then the exhalation is like surfing a wave back to shore. We wanna make the surfing part as long and enjoyable as we can. So watching the energy slowly be released, don't push out the breath, just release it as slowly as we can. And just feel what it's like right now. What is it like 
right now. Let yourself notice whatever feelings are present. Might be an impulse to move, a tiredness, a jumpy attention. Let whatever comes to your attention change whenever it starts to change. And whenever your breath or feelings in the body or impulses change and then settle, once they settle, find another impulse in the body that seeks your attention, that wants you to do something. So it might be twitchiness in the eyes or in the tongue or in the shoulders, the jaw, the hands. Find whatever is changing most frequently and just observe it without any opinion, without any judgment, until whatever it is you're observing, feelings, breath, impulses, watch it until it settles and then move on to observing whatever else demands your attention. And lastly, before we go into silence for a little while, if this ever becomes difficult or feels uh, draining or stressful, just stop observing your internal experience for a little while. Just relax your shoulders and just listen to the sounds around you. Just listen to sounds arise and pass as if they're a piece of music. Don't try to meditate. Just listen. And then whenever you're up for it, bring your awareness back into the body and just once again start observing whatever seeks your attention.
So at this time, we're going to do just a visualization slash stress reduction practice to help with any degree of dependence we have on our remote apps. For some of us, it's difficult to stop work at a reasonable hour. We feel a need to respond to every single email that comes in or open and read every email that comes in, even well after we've put in a hard day's work. For some people who are dating, it might be a preoccupation with messages. Will that one person we're interested in send a message to us? For some people might be attached to the point of addictively scrolling news sites. For some, a compulsion to employ FaceTime or Instagram, perhaps to look at an ex's page or simply to feel a sense of being more connected. For some, it might be the need to constantly check Bitcoin or financial markets. The list goes on. So how do we reduce this dependence? So visualize whatever is your app of choice, if there is one. Imagine it's in some way summoning you. Perhaps a sound has emerged from your smartphone, a notification of a new message, or somehow a laptop is indicating that something of interest has occurred. Maybe on eBay you've bidded for something and there's some news and so forth. Just visualize whatever is for you the stickiest, most difficult situation to not pick, you know, for you, the situations where you feel the strongest impulse or compulsion to return to your phone or your laptop. And just as this image and situation is in your mind, relax your shoulders, soften your bellies. Long exhalations. Put 
with a slight unforced smile, if that's available, into the corners of the mouth. And bring to mind an image of nature or a friend looking at you with an image of gratitude or welcoming. If you like, put a hand on your heart center to activate your vagal nerve, create a sense of safety and being at home. And just keep relaxing, breathing, visualizing friends or a favorite place where you feel safe and relaxed, a place in nature, on the beach, in a park. And just Allow your body to practice being at ease despite the constant summoning of the world around you, the connected world around you. So I'm now going to ring the bowl and take as much time as you'd like to slowly open your eyes and ground yourself in the sensations, the sights around you, trying to look at first images that are neutral, relaxing, don't allow whatever peace or ease you've cultivated at the end of a meditation to be thrown away. So try to make the transition slow, gradual, easeful. <laughs> 